Hello, this is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. This month, myself and Maria Kahoot, the feature editor for Medical News Today, will be looking at the role the gut has to play in Parkinson's disease. Hey, hi, Maria. How are you? Hi, Hilary. Not too bad. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So, Maria, you chose this topic for today. What was it in the research that caught your eye? So, the gut-brain axis, that communication between the brain and the gut, that's come up a lot in recent research and especially in research around Parkinson's disease. There are so many diseases that have changed from when I first practiced medicine, and Parkinson's is one of those ones that has moved from a movement disorder to now being thought of as a multi-system disease. How's that? Well, it was just thought of as the movement, this rigidity of movement, difficulty getting out of a chair. But now we understand that it actually includes not only the nervous system of the brain, but the autonomic nervous system that controls heart rate, blood pressure, respiration and the gut. So those symptoms of constipation or diarrhea or bloating, those are also possibly part of the cause of Parkinson's, not just secondary. That's very interesting. And that's what I'd like us to discuss today. So we've got two guests today that can help us explore this association between Parkinson's disease and the gut. And they are Gary Shaughnessy and Dr. Aisha Demirkan. My name is Aisha Demirkan. I'm an academic at the University of Surrey. Gut microbiome, let's say in the last five years, is in my area of interest. Earlier, I did biology, genetics and human statistics. Hi everyone, I'm Gary Shaughnessy. I'm Chair of Parkinson's UK. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's in, uh, well, eight years ago. At the time I was Chief Exec of Zurich's insurance business in the UK and then became Chief Exec of their business in Europe, Middle East and Africa before semi-retiring, which means that I became the Chair of the Z Zurich Foundation, Parkinson's UK and England Athletics. Aisha and Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's start with you, Aisha, because today we're going to be focusing on the influence the gut has on Parkinson's. Just tell me, how on earth does something in our gut track back up into our brain? How can that possibly happen? Yeah, it is very surprising, right? When I learned it first, I was also thinking, well, this is a little bit interesting because you would expect that actually... Diseases like diabetes, intestinal disorders, which were the first ones to be studied in the gut microbiome. So these would be the highlights of this research area. But then I think Parkinson's disease, in a way, is very specific because of what we call the Brack hypothesis. Brack and colleagues, when they looked at the slices of the vagus nerve, Uh, from intestine towards the brain. Can I just come in there and say the vagus nerve? I think it's the longest cranial nerve. It comes from the brain and it's like a telephone wire that goes all the way down to the gut, but it's got extensions to the heart and the lung. Yeah, yeah. So what they found is that when they looked at these slices of this nerve in early and late disease, actually the first differences were starting at the end of the nerve, which was closest to the intestines. 
So there comes the idea that the disease actually starts in the intestines and then through the vagus nerve it spreads to the other tissues and towards the brain. So that was the most interesting discovery and also it makes Parkinson's disease the most valuable disease to be researched in terms of gut-brain connection. Maria, you're fascinated by this, aren't you? Yes, I was just going to ask very simply, how so? Why do you say that Parkinson's disease is sort of the core condition to look at in that sense? Because I think it's the most aberrant example in terms of what has been shown connected via this nerve. Perhaps we have it, I am thinking, because gut microbiome is also being studied for depressive disorders, for Alzheimer's disease, for anxiety, schizophrenia, ADHD, but among them, the most aberrant example of this, like really, that you can see in the sections of a tissue is the Parkinson's disease. In the end of the telephone wire in the gut, there's Parkinson's disease abnormality. Yes, that's where it starts. Yeah. In the earliest samples, they see it in the gut. And then as the disease progresses, when they look at the tissue sections, it just moves up, up, up. So, Maria, there was an alternative thought about how this might happen. Yeah, so there's some research to say that inflammation may have something to do with it. So could it be that there's inflammation from the gut spreading to the brain and that's got something to do with Parkinson's disease being triggered? Yeah, there is inflammation hypothesis. Of course, there is involvement of short-chain fatty acids, which are supposed to be anti-inflammatory. So we need to always keep in our mind that Parkinson's disease is actually a multifactorial disease, right? There is a genetic basis of it. You need to have some genetic tendency. If you have a very small genetic tendency, then you need to have a larger environmental exposure to certain things to be able to top up above the risk threshold where you get diagnosed or where your symptoms are not uh, manageable anymore and then you go to the doctor, so what's, what is going on? So we should remember there are multiple factors. It can be the diet, a little bit of exercise, a little bit of uh, genetics. So in that sense, yes, inflammatory pathways, because they are triggered by our diet, stress levels, or the medicines that we take, that is a strong hypothesis. But anti-inflammatory pathways are involved in almost every disease. So we've established this route between the gut and the brain with a brain disorder starting in the gut. Gary, let's bring you in here and let's start with actually what symptoms you had at the point of diagnosis and then we'll track back to what risk factors you might have had in that balance that Aisha was talking about. So how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 48. Gosh, you were really young. And most people are diagnosed over the age of 60, so you're in that that rare 5, 10%? It's about 10% of young onset, yeah. So what symptoms did you have when you were first diagnosed? Two that I was really aware of and one that I kind of think of now. The first one was I had a tremor that started in my right hand then went to my right leg. The second one was my sleep was just all over the place and, and it's got worse progressively. And the third symptom, which I didn't really think about at the time, was that my sense of smell almost entirely went. Just going back, did you have any constipation before that? I'm sorry to ask such a personal question. Not that I remembered. I mean, I've had that since and 
almost extremes, either constipation or the opposite, but not at the time. It's not something I remember at the time. So it's about eight to ten years before diagnosis that some people present with constipation. Aisha, back to you. Tell me what sort of constellation of stomach symptoms to people that you're researching, what do they have? What we observe is that there are a wide range of gastrointestinal, like stomach and intestinal annoyances and disturbance that affected people. But these symptoms, they can be different for everybody. Some suffer from constipation, some suffer from uh, like other types of intestinal issues. In general, it's very difficult to see where these differences are coming from. Are there actually different types of gut dysbiosis? Basically, with the term dysbiosis, we are referring to any level and any quality of disturbances that is different than what we would call normal and healthy range of the biome environments. Gary also said his sleep was all over the place and got worse. How typical is that of people with Parkinson's? There are new studies going on was the REM sleep disorder. That is a very important indicator of Parkinson's disease. There was a study that looked at potentially diagnosing Parkinson's disease sooner than usual by looking at stool samples of people with this REM sleep disorder because they found that people with REM sleep disorder, so like deep sleep disorder basically, have the same kind of markers or proteins in their stool as people who then go on to develop Parkinson's disease. So I thought that was very interesting. How would you know you had an REM deep sleep disorder. Gary, what was it like? Well, I would say when I was diagnosed, it was lack of sleep and I'd wake up and so on. Now, I've, over the last few years, really vivid dreams and I've fallen out of bed a few times because I'm turning over, doing something, you know, sort of dealing with whatever it is in the dream. It's really vivid. So you're acting out your dreams. Yeah. Yeah, so the normal bit when you're in that dreaming sleep, you're body goes into a sort of paralysis and then that control mechanism gets switched off is that right I, I don't know the technical way of doing it but that's effectively the consequence i mean i'll move quite a lot while i'm in, uh, asleep or supposedly asleep i you think that's right I think that is the definition of it, more or less. But what is interesting is that not everyone who is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease experiences this disorder. But if you have this disorder, it's almost 99% that you are going to develop Parkinson's disease at the end. Although the disorder itself is rare, but it's very specific. So you can't really use it for screening. But once you have it, unfortunately, you know it. And I should say, this doesn't happen every night when I go to sleep. I think some people I've talked to have, have this as a, it's almost a constant. For me, it's something that happens maybe one night a week. Let's just move on to your study now, Aisha. I think we've established why there's an interest in the gut and Parkinson's. So tell us about the gut microbiome. Tell me about the differences you found between people who had Parkinson's and those who didn't. So what we found, actually, overall the study, if you would think of the gut environment, like for about 1,000 different species of microbes, we found one-third of these microbes to be different. So this is a very strong indication of dysbiosis, disturbances of the biome environments. 
and also how the patients function, what kind of genes they carry. It was also different. We found reduced short-chain fatty acid producers, for example, bacteria that is known to be gut-friendly. We found uh, many of them reduced. We found increased pathogenic bacteria for a few types, including Escherichia coli, and we found a lot of bacterial pathways disturbed as well, potentially affecting well-being of the neuronal tissues, let's say. So what you're saying is that there are more unfriendly bacteria and fewer of the gut-friendly bacteria. Do you know how much of these disturbances were actually affected by the participants' diets? It's very difficult to say in our study how much of these were actually affected by diets. So we know that the biggest exposure that we can get exposed to is diet. And afterwards, I believe this is exercise and stress. This is my idea. But in our study, because it was cross-sectionally designed, so we didn't give these individuals a certain diet, we don't even know what they were exactly eating. So it is very difficult to speculate on that. And especially because these were patients that were not newly diagnosed. They were also using a lot of medication different types of medications to ease their symptoms of the disease, symptomatic treatments like to ease gastrointestinal symptoms. So it's depending on the symptoms you have, you're going to receive different medications, right? In addition to the main commonly prescribed medication. So I think medication also can explain some of these changes, but it doesn't change what the Brack hypothesis puts in front of us still, which is the idea that the disease starts in the intestines and then through the vagus nerve, it spreads to the other tissues and towards the brain. So basically, do you think it could start in the gut stands because some friendly bacteria, some good bacteria are diminished in the guts of people with Parkinson's disease and some that can become harmful are increased. And if I remember correctly from your study, you mentioned a type of bacterium called, I apologize because I might butcher the Latin, but it's the desulfovibrio bacteria. Mm-hmm which was also highlighted by a study this year published in Frontiers from the University of Helsinki, where they found these specific strains of this bacterium in the gut in an animal study they hypothesized might be the cause of Parkinson's. And they tied that to inflammation. They say that this bacteria can induce inflammation. Would you also think that that sounds likely or that there are mechanisms of inflammation that start in the gut that could then trigger or worsen Parkinson's? Definitely, especially the inflammation is triggered by the pathogenic bacteria. We found a bunch of pathogenic bacteria. They formed a cluster actually based on like similarity of their abundances across different people. So that's definitely can be the case, yes. So, Gary, just bringing you back in here, because we're talking about a disease that you're living with, when you're hearing this, thinking back before your diagnosis, what was your diet like or what was your stress levels like? Can you kind of start to make sense of that within your own story? I'm sort of. I was doing a job where I was working long hours eating on the go. I don't tend to, and I didn't tend to, eat breakfast. 
quite often wouldn't eat lunch. My diet was okay, but it was probably the amount of the food I had was a different, you know, not necessarily managed in, in terms of times throughout the day, etc. And the stress levels in the role were clearly quite high. So, I, I mean, listening to what, what you say, I, I'm not sure I can kind of say, yes, here's a connection, but I am interested in, so what could I do about it? You know, if I, I'm in the situation where I've got the outcome that you've talked about, what can I do from a diet point of view that would make a difference? It's very difficult for me to advise anyone anything, right? Because we are all very individual. Our gut microbiome is individual. So prevention and the long-term maintenance is something else together with the other complications of the disease. So I cannot really advise anything, but studies show there is a problem with increased sugar consumption. That is one thing, but it's very difficult as these studies are not really finalized. It makes it difficult for us to advise to an individual with a certain genetic and lifelong history of exposure to different things because we don't know what is in you. But there are a lot of research about that and I hope it's going to come to some conclusion at some point. But it sounds like the link between Parkinson's and the gut microbiome doesn't work the same for everyone. Um, we cannot prescribe the same thing to all patients, right? This is what we learned from personalized medicine so far. What is interesting about Parkinson's disease, when we try to cluster patients, their profiles of different bacteria in their guts, which is not in the paper, actually, we've seen that not all individuals are depleted, diminished by short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria, not all. A portion of patients are actually suffering from that particular pathology, but not all patients. So we really still need to understand this uh, microbial individuality at the patient basis to be able to prescribe them, hey, you are this type of Parkinson's disease, so basically short-chain fatty acid supplementation wouldn't work in your case, but perhaps another thing would work. So we are still in the beginning of understanding these things and we don't know much. Like there are small human studies, there are animal research going on, but at the large scale, it is difficult. This is really interesting because this is one of the challenges of having Parkinson's is that, you know, you can't say one thing works because some things seem to work for some people, some things have a negative effect for some people and and that makes it, as you say, very personalised. That's a really good point, Gary. And um, let's just move on to something that you personally have been doing. Now, let's talk about exercise. Tell us about your most recent activity challenge that you've undertaken. Well, exercise has become a big part. It was already a part of my life before, but it's it's become something that really I see it as a big way of me helping to manage and control the condition I gradually went from a bit of running to marathons and then the latest thing I've done was 14-day cycle from Liverpool to Ukraine, 1,400 miles, which was, which was probably a little bit beyond my capability, to be honest. But you did it. But I got there. I got there with a team who, who were superb. Amazing. And we're going to do, there's 20 of us, including nine of whom have Parkinson's, are cycling from Brighton to Barcelona. While I'm exercising, I don't feel like I have Parkinson's quite often. So I ran a half marathon yesterday and while I was running it, I, I felt fine. 
That is so amazing. And I find it just beautiful that you're having this experience because the perception that I or in that a lot of people might have with Parkinson's is that because there can be stiffness, because there can be problems with balance, it can be more challenging to exercise. And you're doing things that people who don't have Parkinson's disease are going to find extremely challenging, like everything that you described. So you said you feel like you don't have Parkinson's when you exercise. How, how come? Can you describe that to us a bit more? Well, I think this is where a lot of managing the condition, I think, is around your mental attitude. Because when I first was diagnosed, I actually found it very difficult running. And I'd go running as part of being on business trips abroad and so on. I'd, I'd run in, in cities that I went to. And I did decline in the first months quite rapidly in terms of my running. But my wife actually said to me, just focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. And that was a bit of a turning point for me. And, you know, by not worrying about I've got to get better and do quicker and, and just focusing on enjoying my running. And ironically, I have got better and I ran my personal best in the marathon in May this year. So eight years after diagnosis. And I think the balance is it's a fair point. My balance isn't very good, but the more time I spend on the bike, the better my balance becomes. So I think the exercise is self-fulfilling. It gets you to practice. And if you focus on the, the things that are making you uncomfortable, then you'll kind of worry yourself into a position where it does get worse. If you focus on the things that, that make you feel good about it, then it's somehow the rest follows, you know. So, Gary, you didn't mention your time there. What was that personal best on the marathon? It was four hours and five minutes. That is just extraordinary. Well, and it's great. I mean, this is the thing I tried to get across as well is, for me, it's exercise of any form. I've seen people do table tennis, walking, <laughs> yes, running. Swimming is good for people. And I probably should spend more time in the gym as well. You know, I don't see any downside in doing exercise apart from occasionally when I do something major, I think you get fatigue and that's, you just got to manage that. Let's just think about, is there a possible link, Aisha, between Gary's athleticism and his microbiome? And if so, how might that operate? Yeah, exercise itself is an amazing way of shaping our brain and body, right? We all know it from ourselves. But in terms of reversing the pathology, there are some large physiological effects that we can think about. If you're running a marathon, for example, it's a big thing that your body has to go through and it introduces, for instance, your heat increase for a long time. It's like a long fever in a way. There is a long-term increase in the core heat. That's one thing. And that should definitely have an important effect. So that could kill off some bacteria and let some others grow. Is that what you're saying? Like just getting hot from exercise? Yes, can be true. Heat shock proteins. It can be true. Like multiple things, right? It's difficult to say exactly what. Another thing could be when you exercise, a lot of the blood is used in the muscles. So there is a lack of blood in the intestines. This is another important physiological aspect of the exercise. It is possible that this lack of blood and oxygen in the intestines is actually somehow a healthy stressor that can give a chance for reversing some of the dysbiosis. 
So that's really interesting because that's almost like when you exercise, you get little tears in your muscle and then your muscle grows because it's repairing that. And what we're saying then is something similar might be happening in the gut because you're taking the oxygen away. You're getting kind of little tears or something in the gut lining that then gives your body a chance to repair it better. I think that is the underlying idea. So, Gary, have you heard of this before? I haven't, no, but it does make some sense because as you run or, you know, you you are gradually getting used to putting your body under stress and it becomes a reaction. I guess my question is when I put myself through a marathon, I'm sure that the body wasn't really designed to do a marathon, but when you think about all the training that goes you know, I, I've got to think about my exercise as the six or nine months leading up to the marathon rather than just the marathon itself. So how you understand the cumulative impact of doing training and, as you say, you know, stressing, but then recovering as a result of that. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. But in a way, I think it would be unfair to think that all the beneficial effects of the exercise are actually mediated through the microbiome. But some, for sure, but we cannot say what is the percentage of this, depending on the type and the duration of the exercise. You see, I'm, I'm really interested for you, particularly Gary, because you've now been diagnosed for eight years and you are so well from you know what we can see. You're able to do marathons, extraordinary feats of exercise. And that, after eight years for people who are diagnosed in their late 60s is not the normal trajectory. So has anyone talked to you about your own trajectory and what's happening and what you're doing that's helping you? Yeah, I've had conversations with my neurologist about it, but my tremor, on the other hand, has clearly deteriorated. So when my medication wears off, my tremor is significantly worse and my medication is less effective now than it was when I started, but there's no doubt that in my mind, the exercise has helped me manage the condition and has made quite a big difference in, in the trajectory. Yeah. So it definitely helped with coordination. As Aisha said, there may be an impact also on the microbiome, which might be sort of reducing some more toxic chemicals that your gut could produce. Can I ask, what about things like probiotics? Do we know what sort of difference they make? Or is that difficult to tell because each person has a different answer? Well, in the study that we performed in Parkinson's disease, what was interesting in our study is that we actually found some bacterial species, especially from Bifidobacterium, which are commonly used in these kind of biotic supplements. Uh, we found them increased in Parkinson's disease which was confusing because we don't know whether is this coming from the patients that are actually taking supplements to manage their disease. Was it a, a cause of the therapy they were following or was that something that's actually related to the cause of the disease? So I am a little bit cautious about these kind of supplements because, well, basically in medicine, we first shouldn't do any harm. But I know that there is also some studies from some probiotic companies that are actually going on at the moment. And perhaps results of that one can give us more information on that. In general, I'm very cautious about any medication or supplement, but uh, that's my own point of view. 
Aisha, did you have any questions for Gary? I wanted to ask Gary something, actually. You said that when you were diagnosed, you are a CEO with a lot of responsibilities. How was your stress level then? And how do you think with all this charity work you are doing and perhaps a different way of looking at life after your diagnosis, how do you see it? I actually ended up, after I was diagnosed, moving to Switzerland and taking on the European role, which created a, you know even more stress, if, if you like, living in a, a different place for three years. But the difficulty I have is I'm sure that my job is less stressful, but living with Parkinson's is a new stress that I didn't have to deal with before. So... I find it kind of difficult to compare. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've got hugely supportive friends and family and that makes a big difference because the stress that you have of having Parkinson's, if you've got people around you who are helping and supporting, that helps a lot. I know a lot of people who aren't that fortunate and and then I think this, the stress and the anxiety that comes just from that for people with Parkinson's can be really considerable. That's a really good place to finish the social support of people around you. Dr. Aisha Dumerkam, Gary O'Shaughnessy, thank you so much for joining myself and Maria. It was fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege to have you on the podcast. And thank you for listening. You can read more about Parkinson's and the gut in Maria's accompanying feature on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be back next month talking about racism and health. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a Hivis Radio production for Medical News Today. <laughs> <laughs>